Welcome to Hire Everybody. Or welcome back to Hire Everybody, the podcast where we help you reach higher in your career and learn with and from experts in recruitment, entrepreneurship, marketing, and many more about what it takes to become a leader in your dream industry. But first, Tom Zanzo, hit that beat. Yes. change the world so bad well go do it but how these problems are so complex well i'd say one step at a time the everyday deeds of everyday people like you and i they matter a lot but i also have a full-time job a girlfriend two dogs and a mortgage how can i possibly find time on the side well just make it your career then it's scary though how would i even start and more importantly i can't imagine there's much money in it if you feel like nikki dear audience member don't be afraid you're not alone and we have just the thing for you yes we do today on the show is andrew andrea co-founder and director at impact 17 an organization specialized in connecting companies not-for-profits and academia to make the future more sustainable and drive effective humanitarian action andrew is a true master and has worked at the world economic forum and in the united nations system he is a man who knows how to navigate the exciting careers in the world of sustainable development let's go get it We have got Andy in the virtual studio, and actually today also Nikki in the virtual studio, as we're not in the same location, people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true, Tom. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us today. And we just spoke briefly about this in our pre-chat um, elevator pitch. So we'd love you to imagine you're, you're in an elevator with our audience and you're going up the Empire stage and you're going to tell them all about yourself. So off you go. Oh, that's really, it, it's very stressful doing that, isn't it? You know, <laughs> because as soon as I meet somebody, I feel like just by looking at me, they, they know me already better than I know myself. As uh, one, of my, one of my very good friends, um, he, he, he makes a thing of always being able to predict what I'm going to say or do before I do it. And he's always right and I'm always wrong. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, so, in factual terms, my parents are Cypriots. They were economic refugees, and I'm saying that because um, that kind of formed some of my insecurities in life, I think. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up in the east end of London, um, which was, I say grew up, I was probably more dragged up in the east mm. end of London, managed to make my way through some education, uh, escaped and stopped in Geneva on my way to work in a refugee camp, um, but stopped in Geneva and made Geneva my home. Um, and I've been living off the great work of everybody else I've ever met ever since, really. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of formed my, my, the basis of my career. 
Look, fantastic. As we're going to dive into your career a little bit later anyways, you will not um, be able to get away this easily, you know. <laughs> but um, as our loyal audience members will know, we like to be a little bit cheeky. So we have tasked um, Andy with withholding some of his three most prized tactics and the people often don't use to advance their careers, generally speaking, but specifically in the sort of Geneva multilateral bubble thing, World Economic Forum thing, United Nations. So Andy, don't give it all away at the beginning of the episode. Um, we always like to start, and we are asking similar questions to our guests this month, um, by debunking some myths about careers in this space of sustainability, um, um, social impact, and all that. So these questions are a bit cheeky, a bit oversimplified, but they will help us to get at the bottom of what this sector is actually about. So here's one for you from me. You have a choice to make as a person. Either be that career person, money, fame, a comfortable life, or work for pittance, you know, with a small NGO, um, eat ramen noodles, but at least have an impact and help change the world. Is that true or false? Oh, depends, <laughs> doesn't it? Whatever floats your boat. Now, I say that genuinely because um, it, it really does. It depends on the cost to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think there's any um, one job that's, you know, the perfect job or one that's, you know, really terrible um, in terms of what you contribute to society. Because if you um, if you're working in a in a living in an environment, what you want is is that environment to aspire to a time where you can appreciate art, where the banking system works, where the roads function and and the health system operates well. And that means you need people who are artists, you need people who are paper pushers, you need people who understand economics. I wouldn't want to do any of those things. They can earn a lot of money from those things. But for me, I found the, the hard way that I needed to have fun mm. between nine and five. And what gave me fun happened to be the things I enjoyed doing. And, and what I'm trying to say really is that you don't really decide whether you're going to live to work or work to live. And in the UN, where I worked um, for, for several years, you have people who are really passionate for example they're passionate about helping people you know being on the front line um working in in disaster zones and trying to get food to starving people um and they end up working in the world's largest civil service and don't ever get to the front line to do that kind of work and it's a the opposite is true in, in with other people that work at the UN as well. So you have, for example, in the World Health Organization, you have lots of doctors who you know who who are trained and who have lived their whole lives wanting to help people, but end up in an office block in Geneva, hmm. um, not really applying their best skills and their passion, but still enjoying what they do and having an influence on the world. 
True. So, I mean, the two things that have filtered out of what you've um, what you said just now is it really depends on what floats your boat at the end of the day, right, in, in uh, choosing these career paths. But you've also hinted towards something that is very important to, to us and to this month of impact that we're running, um, which is the bandwidth of possible career options in this impact space, in this like world where your work does make a difference in one way or another, um, irrespective of the actual activity. Um, there's a lot out there. So we're going to dive into that a little bit later, but I can just feel and sense that Nikki has another naughty question for you. <laughs> yes, I do. Of course I have plenty more questions, but you spoke already today about the news and you said that it actually made you happy today, but it can make us feel quite hopeless at the moment. There's so many things happening, social injustice, environmental issues. It feels like a bit of a lost cause. Is it a lost cause? Um, is it too late, or can we still make a difference? No, it's not a lost cause. I don't think. I don't think the world is a lost cause. You know, if, let's look at where we're at. There's. Um, if you, or no, let's not look at where we're at. Let's look at where the world was a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. The world is changing, obviously, and, and humans are having a bigger impact on the environment around them. But life is improving for the individual all over the world. And we have, um, we have hope, we have passion, we have technology, we have innovation. And the trick is trying to apply those things in new ways to have a bigger impact. Because that's needed, obviously, I recognise that. You know, we need to have a bigger and more positive impact. But it's not too late. There are other periods of history where humankind has thought the world was going to end and it wasn't too late then and it's not too late now we can all we can all do a bit either at the um the local level with our friends and family in our local communities or uh, and in geneva we're lucky enough that in some cases we can have a, a global impact on with some of the work that we do and if we can influence those those big decision makers to make those small changes, then no, I don't think it's too late. Oh, I couldn't turn up for so much better. Day. Yeah, good. <laughs> mm, likewise, and it's really interesting, you know, because um, we have we had three guests that um, we have recorded interviews for this month of uh, impact um, with already, and through across the board, everybody still had that notion of optimism, of hope, even mm -hmm. having worked so close um, to that space, right? So it also helps to not just read the news, but actually become part of the progress which is what we're going to get into now, which is always my favorite bit, because, you know, we are the Higher Career Podcast. We want to help people figure out um, their careers, how they can ace them, how they can have a bit of an easier time with them so that they retain some, you know, capacity to actually bring their values to work and help, you know, drive change within the organizations and around them where they are. So let's take it from the top, Andy. How did you get into this whole World Economic Forum United Nations universe? If I remember correctly... You did something quite drastically different at the beginning of your <laughs> career, right? Yeah, I've always been doing something different. <laughs> when um, when I when I first went to college, um, I started off with a on an engineering course, hmm. and the reason I decided to take an engineering course is because my brother-in-law was a he was a civil engineer, and he had a company car. And he spent most of his time doing business on the golf course. And I thought, wow, that's me. That's what I want. Anyway, it took me two months 
to, to work out after studying engineering that that's the last thing I wanted to do was spend my whole life as an engineer. <laughs> and so I, I shifted to, to study something I was interested in, history and politics. And uh, that obviously didn't send me off to become a professional historian or a politician. Um, but instead I went off and sold um, life insurance. Mm-hmm. And that was the real, that was the proper first job I had, as well as, you know, working in bars and and so on. But then came a time when, you know, I realised that also I didn't want to be doing that for the rest of my life either. And I decided that was after about six months. So um, I took the Wednesday edition of the Guardian newspaper and for a laugh, just to cheer myself up on a down day, I decided to apply for every job that there was in the newspaper. <laughs> Back in the day, job, job advertisement in the newspaper. <laughs> every job in the newspaper. I thought, you know, I'm not going anywhere. I've got nothing else to do. I'm unemployed. Why not? Let's just try it. Hey, and, wait, I want to um, know what type of jobs were they? Like a range? Oh, yeah, they were, they were mainly kind of media, journalism, marketing, um, public relations kind of jobs and cool. um, and I got a response I was shortlisted for one and the shortlisting process said okay what we'd like you to do because um, this was involved in part of the job we would like you to write um, a thousand words in the style of your choice about one of the headline news topics so I thought, oh, okay, you know, I can I can have some fun with this. And at that time, Richard Branson was flying a hot air balloon over the Sahara Desert, and so I wrote about the um, the mating habits of camels that he could see from the hot air balloon, and uh, <laughs> and I think it was you know that just being different um, got me the interview. And it was with a lobbying company in London. And the job was to um, to monitor the news and look for opportunities for our clients to influence um, politicians and civil servants uh, based on what was going on in the news. So I turned up for the interview and there were 12 other people shortlisted for the interview. And six of them were from Oxford University. Uh, five of them were from Cambridge University. And I was there from Coventry Polytechnic. And so I felt that uh, there's no chance that I'm going to get this job. And so I relaxed and just had fun with being there and enjoyed the, the interview process. And it was very strange. We had, at one point, they had us in a in a circle sitting in a circle and we all, all had to interview each other which was quite desperate and so uh, <laughs> what you, what we found that was very competitive is that when somebody started to look good they they were then brought down with a very difficult question and so i was asked at one point i was asked tell us the worst three things about yourself which was a bit um nerve-wracking for anybody who cared about getting the job but I decided to be honest and I said well um, I probably drink too much I smoke too much and 
If you ask my parents, I probably drive too fast as well. And that went down and that made everybody laugh. And I got the job. I got the job, um, which was great. But the, the, the story here is that it was a very highly paid job. I did very well with the, the salary. Um, but I woke up one day and my conscience got the better of me. Um, I was, of the seven clients I was working on, six of them were arms manufacturers. Mm. Um, they made fighter planes, they made uh, bombs and missiles, and this was at the time of uh, the Gulf War as well. So there was, uh, it, it wasn't enjoyable in that sense. So I quit and I went to volunteer for a charity and I've been trying to buy my way back into heaven ever since I had that job. <laughs> um, so I volunteered for ActionAid in London mm-hmm. and converted into a full-time job where I met my wife and we decided to run away and see the world together. Um, and on our way, we stopped in Geneva and they needed somebody to uh, at the UN to help build a, a web-based information system. And I had some experience of doing that and got the job at the UN. There were a lot of amazing people who managed to work their way through the system and make the system work in the way they wanted to. And they had a massive um, global and political impact. And they're very admirable, admirable people, and they really stood out. And one of them who... Um, I wouldn't call him my mentor, but he was somebody I worked with closely and respected. He went off and said, um, decided to start an NGO, a non-profit organisation. And he called me up one day on a particularly, when I was having a particularly uh, down day at work and said, "Um, we're creating this non-profit organisation, do you want to come and work with us? And I said, well, what is it going to do? And he said, I don't know yet. I said, yeah, okay, I'd love to. (laughs) You sold it to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, he turned it into an organisation that did armed conflict mediation. Oh, full circle. Yeah, and effectively what we were doing was catching the, um, the opportunities that fell through the UN's net and that was the first time I started to recognise the um, that if you have the right people around the table and you can help them communicate with each other, you can achieve great things. Hmm. Um, and it was quite limiting in the sense it was always about armed conflict mediation, and there were there were I thought bigger issues going on. So um, after twelve years there. Um, I was looking around in Geneva to see what else there was. And the World Economic Forum were um, launching a project on global risks. So I contacted them to find out a bit more, just to interview them. And um, I was, uh, when the, at the weekend, I was at the swimming pool uh, in Geneva and got a phone call from the World Economic Forum saying great, we'd like to offer you the job. And 
I didn't realise as well what job. <laughs> so apparently when I was interviewing, I thought I was interviewing them, they were interviewing me. Can I stop you there real quick, Andy? So um, what I find really interesting, and you've sort of alluded to some of these um, nuggets of this entire story, is the power of your network that you've had. And sometimes also these incredibly random moments that have um, given you your you know, your next career step sometime by the pool, for example. So can you go in on that a little bit more? As you decided to sort of career transition from your um, career as a lobbyist, do you remember like maybe one or two really crystallizing and defining moments um, where your network really was the key to the next step that, you, um, that was offered to you? Yeah, um, one of my bosses... I was feeling particularly insecure and I was saying to the the guy who um, had invited me to go and work on in the armed conflict mediation organisation, um, I said, well, what is it, you know, what do I bring to this? Why, you know, you guys, you're, you've got years of experience and um, he said, well, you're like the software that helps us to, to operate. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. He said, and you have an interest in people. I didn't know what he meant. I was like, yeah, of course, isn't everybody interested in people? He said, no. So if you ask them questions, and people love to be asked questions. And he said, with that, you will build a fantastic network. I was like, oh, okay. He said, you've probably already got one and you don't know it. You don't look at it in that way. You probably see these people as friends or colleagues, but they're actually a network that you could make a, a great deal out of. Mm-hmm. So that's when my eyes opened to it, and the where that network became valuable, directly and obviously, it was firstly um, when I went from the UN to work at the World Economic Forum, because although they already have fantastic networks, I mean, they live and die by their networks, um, I was bringing with me a kind of a fresh network from within the UN, to my knowledge of the people, the individuals, the up-and-coming people, um, to the world economy, and vice versa. When I went back to the UN, I was taking my network and contacts with the CEOs that I'd met through the World Economic Forum. And then when I left the UN, again, you know, setting up um, my company, Impact 17, um, I wouldn't be able to work on partnerships, supporting and promoting evaluating partnerships if I didn't know people who were involved in the partnerships, these kind of um, thought and action leaders Mm. that I already knew. Which I think is a really valuable lesson um, out of your career history. Um, and we talk about this all the time on the show, obviously. But, you know, you have carried your network with you as an active asset, right? So you haven't met somebody at some point, just sort of like left them standing there. But you stayed in touch and you were able to bring them in to advance um, you and your new gig and to also help you advance towards new gigs. So that's really awesome. And you mentioned a couple of other things. And I'm normally the one asking the annoying questions about what are the most important hard skills that you need to get your career organized but so maybe today let's flip it and nikki can ask after the hard skills in a second (laughs) but um changing career paths can make you feel a bit like a fish out of water right so have you have you ever felt like that um any anecdotes that you maybe like to share and in the same vein any sage advice for our listeners out there on how you've overcome that feeling and then started to really perform well and uh, made these new opportunities your own 
Well, maybe this is where I could talk about that piece of advice my father gave me. Mm. Um, yeah, he, he would point his finger at me when he was, you know, he was trying to encourage me. And he would point his finger at me and say, just you remember, Andy, you just really remember, you're worth as much space on this planet as anybody else who takes up the same amount of space. And they're worth as much as you are. Hmm. And what he was trying to say was that as individuals, it doesn't matter what background you come from or how much money you earn, you're equally a human being. And that you've always got something to, to contribute because your background, your experience is different to everybody else's. No matter what age you are, no matter where you come from, you've got something to contribute, something else to add. And in a, in a job context, you have to remember as well that your employer wouldn't be asking you to, to, to do the work if they could do it themselves. So at the very least, you're bringing an extra pair of hands and some confidence that they feel that you can do the job or they wouldn't be recruiting you to do it. No, for sure. Um, and this is the part where we get into the hard skills. I get to ask it today. Sorry about that, Tom. You missed out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> skill development is definitely something consistent and constant that we have to do, right? Because we have to be able to remain flexible in our careers and make sure that we're learning different things. But how would you define your core skill set and, and how have you developed it or refined it over time? Because you probably had to change it quite a bit being in so many different careers. There, there are a couple of things that I'm good at. That's talking to people, listening to people and helping them work together. Um, and those have been the, the common things throughout. Where I've needed to brush up is on the peripheral, um, it's in the peripheral knowledge. So if, for example, you're helping people to, to work together on an education project or a finance project, or then you need some kind of, it might be worth learning a bit more about education or finance so that you can understand the substance of it. I've felt that any other type of training has, has been needed. I've, I think I've been passionate enough to go and get that myself. Mm-hmm. So, for example, i uh, invested my own time and energy to um, become trained and accredited as a facilitator. And What does become... that mean? What does a facilitator do? Oh... <laughs> See the challenges are coming left, right, and centre today. Uh, Tough questions. So the, the context that applies to me is where you you're in a room and you help people to prepare to identify what their um, their objective is and how they can work together to achieve that objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally that takes place in a, in a short period of time. And what I mean by that is over one or two days or in a in a couple of hours. So you facilitate those kinds of interactions. The other investment that I made that I think has been truly worthwhile for me is um, to become a partnership broker. Mm-hmm. So to learn um, the theory and some uh, best practices on how to support and facilitate partnerships in particular. But those kinds, of, you know, I'm, I'm rubbish at other things. You know, the number of times I've tried to... Um, teach myself or to learn new languages it just haven't worked and I think it's <laughs> tell me about it because, yeah 
and it's primarily it's not because I'm not motivated to do it. It's just it doesn't tap into my um, what I'm good at. Hmm. I like to learn more about the things that I'm good at. Uh, I'm sure most people are like if they're if you're honest with yourself, um, you probably want to do more of those kinds of things than you know. Am I really interested in in French grammar? I'm sorry. <laughs> I love being able to talk to people and listen to people in French, but, you know, oh, French grammar would drive me... Even English grammar drives me crazy. <laughs> it often happens at work where you're told you have to know how to use Excel, you have to know how to do these this way, that way, instead of using this, the best skills you have. I mean, I'm the same as you, Andy. I think a lot of, like, personal skills, talking to people, listening to people is what I'm good at. But they often say you have to have like really good at all these things as well what's your what's your thoughts on that well, you can learn that and i think that if, even me even me you can teach yourself that and you can pick up you know how to use excel or powerpoint or even the most complicated software um mm-hmm. it, whichever organization you go into you have to learn their their own bureaucratic processes anyway mm-hmm. you know, which forms and uh, intranets and how to get around them Mm. but it's those other things that you bring with you as an individual with your personality and that that you you're born with and the the experiences that you're shaped by those things you can't learn and they you know people underestimate the value of those kinds of things and i think it's really important that we we give ourselves credit for that and that's what makes us all different and makes us part of the the jigsaw puzzle of life that you know if we're not there then there's a gap mm. no fair enough i mean we had uh, we had a recruiter on the show a few months ago as well who really to nikki's point said there seems to be you're being taught that you know to expand your strengths and expand your weaknesses in equal measure but you can't be a perfect jack of all trades so be cognizant of your weaknesses mm. if your job requires you to work on excel um get skilled and crafty on the elements of it that you need to be able to do just to sort of to get by but focus on your strength and uh, hone those and throughout your career Andy um, because I know the kind of work that you do with Impact 17 and you've just mentioned it yours is partnership brokerage so you've explained what that is but you've also hinted towards some best practices that you've taught yourself so maybe give us like one or two how do you build a good partnership between people or organizations That's a really good question. If I tell you the whole answer, then you'll know as much as me and I'll have nothing to contribute. Um, Fine, keep your secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, the the tendency is to partner with people or organisations you know and like and that you get on with. And that's good in some contexts. That's fine. It's all right. But it misses the point of what bonds a partnership together mm. and what makes it effective. And the starting point, I think, is to begin with what's the intent of the partnership. What are you trying to achieve? And it's good to, as a, you know, as a tip, I would say, is to frame that in a very general, in general terms. Mm. And then use that general description of the objective of a partnership... <laughs> to identify who needs to be around the table, who needs to be involved in this partnership to make it work as best it can. Mm -hmm. 
And then when you've got them involved, when you've got them together, then go back to the objective and reframe it with the group of people you have there so that everybody has input into that objective and they feel a sense of ownership. They feel that they have helped to, to um, translate that into something that is tangible and achievable and worthwhile partnering on. I think that's... Uh, there are other things, but I think that's the most important starting point Mm, for, um, well done, well spoken and most eloquently explained. Um, you do these partnerships between a variety of different sectors, right? So you work with academia, you work with the multilateral system, with private sector organizations. But I really want to explore this, you know, what is this multilateral space for anybody out there in the audience thinking, why do you keep using this word? I don't have the textbook definition in my head, but a quick Google is going to resolve that. But the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, they all sound like places of, you know, hope and fueled by nothing but passion, places where you get to save the world every day. But let's shed some light on what it's really like to work there. You know, there must be a catch of sorts. So... Give us the good, give us the bad, give us the gorgeous, give us the happy about it. <laughs> All right, I have to say that um, in, in general, um, and I think any member of the public can have the same idea, is that these, um, these organisations can have a, um, a massive global impact on front-page news stories. Mm. That's fantastic, and that is definitely needed. Um, and it's kind of exciting too to, you know, to turn on the news or open the newspaper or click on the CNN or the um, the Times and see that the front page news item is something that you've been directly involved in. That's kind of rewarding in and of itself. But these organisations, they're really it really difficult to get into um, and to understand because they're so massive and so varied they mm -hmm. are um, and, and people tend to forget that they are there to service the member states the governments that makes them more complex than the traditional civil service but that's what they are they're international civil service organisations so anyone who goes to work there becomes an international civil servant. Mm. In many posts, the creativity um, isn't something that's particularly encouraged. What you have to do is service the member states, follow their instructions, because that's what you're paid to do. And that can be quite stifling for some people, especially those who are you know, passionate about as we were saying early on, you know, passionate about helping people on the front line. And I think that's one of the major problems these organisations face, is that they attract those kinds of people, but what they offer them in return is um, more of the suited style of work rather than the boots and getting your hands dirty kind oh, of Oh, interesting. I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's so yeah. many processes as well. And, you know, you've just said, you mentioned so many processes, dependencies, loads of different things. As you've mentioned, and I think you'll probably go in a bit more, it's hard to remain flexible and, and focused on process over 
or sorry, progress over process. So how do you do things differently at Impact 17? And how has your experience with the UN helped help that? Oh, I love this question. Um, because Impact 17 was effectively born out of frustration. Hmm. So within these organizations, there was fantastic, and I'm including the World, the, the World Economic Forum with the UN agencies I've worked in, they had in those organizations massive opportunities uh, when they had the right people together. They could attract them because of the, the brand um, on really interesting and, and sexy topics. But having them together seemed to be, on many occasions, an end in itself. What Impact 17 tries to do, and hence the name, is to deliver some impact from getting them together. The number 17 comes from Sustainable Development Goal number 17, which is about partnerships. So it's about trying to deliver impact through partnering. And the, the way that we act differently is trying to encourage the creativity with the people that we work with, um, the people that we employ, um, and to focus on um, action and output-oriented activities, including our events. So we have what um, could easily be um, defined as webinars, and we have uh, an acronym, Y-A-W-N. So yet another webinar. No! <laughs> um, and so, so, but what we do is we do convene people to speak in virtual platforms, um, but we coach them to make those sessions output-oriented. So they're there not to not to not to just give thought leadership. Here's what I think about the future and what it's going to look like. Hmm. No, what we want them to say is, I'm here because I want this to happen. We're looking for partners to make this work better, or we're calling for um, those people over there to change the way they're behaving, because if they don't, this is what might happen, and so on and so forth. So it's much more. Um, a practical experience and that's the that's what runs through the core of impact 17's values and principles and approach i knew there was a reason you had 17 and we we met because my squad number when i played hockey was 17 and i actually have it on my arm and part of my tattoo so there was always a reason we were going to meet i'm actionable i love that it's brilliant maybe that's what we should do everyone we employ should have a 17 tattoo (laughs) (sighs) yeah Compliance, compliance. <laughs> so thank you so much for elaborating on um, on this you know, network of organizations that you've been a part of, how they're similar, how they're the same, how you approach things in a different way. And I love the way that you speak about these virtual events because I've stopped going to some of them because even because during it and especially afterwards, there's never any reporting on, okay, what actually changed, which new partnership has come out of it. It's just this is what we talked about. I'm thinking well, it's fantastic, but I could have just read that in the newspaper, you know. But for anybody out there in the audience still with us and still listening, we have about five minutes left on the clock. So we're going to put Andy into the hot seat a little bit. So anybody out there that is still interested in this space that would love to get in, approach it, snuggle up a little bit, but isn't quite sure how to go about that. Let me ask you the million dollar question. 
How would you recommend people get networked in this space, become visible and relevant for that particular job market? So the more details, the more organizations to keep an eye on, people to get to know better, the better for you. Off you go. Okay. Um, I think this this links back to some of the things we talked about earlier. Um, build a network and do that by being interested and genuinely interested in people. Get in touch with them and interview them. Ask them questions because you're interested. Don't talk to them in as a, a future employer. Ask them questions that help you decide if you want them to be your future future employer learn from the experience and imagine yourself as a as a journalist getting in touch with these people and asking them not only does that give you the information that you can act upon but it also gives you more exposure and not only does it give you more exposure it gives you respect i think people are genuinely um Uh, interested in others who ask them questions people mm. like to talk about themselves so make the most of that learn from them what is really powerful about these big hubs these big events like davos new york uh, united nations general assemblies in september um, together with climate week is just go onto your twitter feed everybody keep an eye on linkedin you know look for mm. the hashtags that might interest you because that's usually the time that all of these interesting people and all these interesting um, organizations will start to speak about themselves and their causes so you know look for these big moments throughout the year to to you know get your starting point to familiarize yourself to find you know these things that are really interesting to you um i tom can yeah. i can I, i just i just want to reinforce what you said there um linkedin is an incredible platform for networking and it you know we we use it a lot to reach out to people that we want to communicate with mm -hmm. and to get them involved in our work mm -hmm. and the the feedback is is tremendous it's the success rate in terms of um, responses, is ex is very, very high. And it seems to be the place where if you have career questions, it's the go-to place, unlike Facebook, for example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So pick your platform and be sure about the purpose that you have for using it, everybody, right? So knowing roughly where you want to go, even if you don't have the clearest path or the clearest map ahead of you, It will allow you to look and screen for these things that are really relevant as they flash up. So sometimes it's just a matter of sort of you know sticking your head into the water and look at the fish, and then you will find the one that, that you actually enjoy. Andy, you have given me at least, and I think us and I hope the audience so much to think about. But Nikki, he's not quite off the hook yet, is he? No, we still have a few minutes to go. And although you've given us some great words of wisdom throughout this episode, we still want you to be on point with top three things that you think people need to do immediately after listening to you oh okay number one apply for jobs if you're looking for jobs try everything you don't know whether you're going to enjoy it or whether you're going to be good at it until you actually try it mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if you get it wrong because what you'll learn is what you enjoy doing and what you don't enjoy doing And then you'll start to try to find the things that you've enjoyed doing more and less of the things you don't. 
So I think try everything um, to begin with is is a good way of channeling and funneling your your career um, your career path. Experimentation check. <laughs> exactly. <Next. laughs> Number two, um, I heard on the radio uh, an interview with with a with a guy, and they were interviewing him about um, making money, and he said. Um, do more of what you love doing because if you love doing it you'll become better at it Mm -hmm. and if you become good at it people will ask you to do more of it and they'll pay you to do it and if they don't at least you're doing what you love doing and that has always resonated with me one more okay the third one (laughs) is is listen to my father be proud of who you are. <laughs> Be proud of who you are and respect others for being who they are as well. You're worth just as much space as they are and they're worth just as much space as you are. Ah, what a nice way to end the episode. Thank you so much, Andy. That's amazing. I'm definitely going to remember those for sure. <laughs> Great. Thank you both very much. It's been a real pleasure, real joy. Wow, what a sensational interview, Andy. Thank you so much again for being on the show with us and shedding light to, you know, what are these mythical, large, world-saving organizations really about and what is working there really like? Um, Dear audience member, if you are out there, you want to check out what Andy is all about, what the Impact 17 is doing, we have linked um, both of his LinkedIn profile and uh, the link to the website in the show notes below. Go check them out. Go give them some love. Next week on the show, we have some somebody sensational sports legend good friend of nikki's as well and currently active living and breathing wildlife conservationist uh in tanzania and kenya we cannot wait to introduce you to her so that she can tell you what it's like to live that dream as always gentlewomen gentlemen and everybody in between let's go get it